Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The New Statesman. I'm Megan Gibson, foreign editor in London. I'm Katie Stallard, senior editor, China and Global Affairs in Washington, D.C. I'm Ida Volk, your correspondent in Berlin. It's Thursday, the 2nd of March. You're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, each Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. On Tuesday, the Belarusian autocrat Alexander Lukashenko arrived in Beijing for a three-day visit where he met with China's leader Xi Jinping. Today, not a single issue in the world can be solved without China. China has become a major country with an independent policy. We discuss the significance of Vladimir Putin's closest ally visiting Beijing at this moment in time. Then we discuss the flurry of drone strikes that have rained down on Russia in recent days. We also take a listener's question on what Macron is trying to achieve in Africa. We are very clearly in a time of transition. We have inherited many historical difficulties without having fully realized the beginning of the transition. And remember, if you're a listener of World Review and you have a question for us, you can send them in to newstatesman.com slash youaskus. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Alexander Lukashenko, the autocratic leader of Belarus, leapt at the chance to pay a state visit to Beijing this week, where he met with China's leader Xi Jinping. Routinely described as a stooge of Vladimir Putin, Lukashenko was surely eager to demonstrate his close relationship with another major world leader. For Beijing, however, the visit is a little more complicated. So Katie, I want to start with you here. You've written a piece this week on the visit. Why has Beijing invited Lukashenko for a state visit at this moment? So I think it's the timing that is the most interesting question. I mean, the fact of inviting Lukashenko to visit Belarus is not in itself particularly 
news making. They are long-term strategic partners. They've had a very close relationship since really since the end of the since the end of the Soviet Union. So I think from Beijing's perspective, they would say, why shouldn't we invite our long-term strategic partner to visit Beijing? I think what has made the reception to this visit um, particularly interesting in Europe and here in the US is that this is happening just at the end of a period when China has really been trying to pursue something of a charm offensive in Europe and really trying to persuade European leaders that China is a neutral actor in the war in Ukraine, that China has a serious proposal for peace, that China is doing everything it can to bring the conflict to an end. At the end of that sort of charm offensive, then for China's top diplomat, Wang Yi to fly to Moscow to meet with Putin and to stress how great China-Russia relations currently are, and then to invite uh, Russia's closest ally, the Belarusian leader Alexander Lukashenko, to Beijing really seems to wholly undermine any idea that Beijing is truly credibly a neutral actor. So I think the timing of it is somewhat puzzling. One darker theory that I have seen on this is that this comes right as the US is warning that it has intelligence, that China is very seriously considering providing lethal aid to Moscow. If it did decide to do that, Belarus would be one possible conduit. There's no evidence that is what's happening. And China has multiple, much more discreet ways that it could transfer munition, for instance, to Russia if it sought to do so. So I think there's almost a kind of Rorschach test quality to this visit, where from China's point of view, I think um, the way Chinese officials look at that is, you know, the US is now implacably opposed to China. It is rallying its allies in this long-term sort of existential contest, as it was described last night at the China Select Committee here in Washington. China sees this as the West really lining up all possible support for this long-term existential contest with China. So why shouldn't it do everything it can to strengthen its own relations beyond the West and to cultivate continued good relations with its strategic partners? Whereas from the West perspective and from here in the United States, this looks like China siding with Russia by hosting its closest ally in Beijing. So there is a way to see this visit as further evidence of the sort of lack of communication and just really this growing and very serious mistrust between Beijing and Washington as both sort of assume and infer the worst possible motivations for each other's actions. Ido, I want to bring you in here because you've written a lot about Belarus in the past. Now, with China attempting to smooth relations with Europe, largely via trade, how is the EU bound to view this warming relationship with a man known as Europe's last dictator? Well, unfortunately, now I don't really think he's the last one, at least if you count Russia's uh, being in Europe, which geographically it is. Yeah, but no, less flippantly, yeah, of course, Lukashenko is an absolute pariah in Europe. There's no question about it. We all remember the migrant crisis about a year and a half when Lukashenko was essentially sponsoring migrants to fly into Belarus and then cross by land into countries like Poland and Lithuania. The hijacking of the Ryanair jet to kidnap Roman Protasevich, the dissident who I think remains in Belarusian captivity. And of course, most recently, Lukashenko allowing Belarus to be used as a launching pad for the attack on Ukraine, even if Belarus's actual military involvement per se is quite limited. But of course, Ukraine and the EU view Belarus as a co-belligerent and I think pretty much all sanctions that have been applied to Russia have also been applied to Belarus. 
no, this is bound to be viewed negatively. There's no question about it. The flip side to that is I don't really think relations can get much worse than they already were. Lukashenko doesn't have much to lose. He's already being treated pretty much the same as Russia's being treated. So he probably needs to go and search for friends elsewhere because, of course, at least before 2020 in those pro-democracy protests, which were crushed by the Belarusian regime, Lukashenko had a habit of playing off Russia and Europe against each other and trying to have this position between the two powers where he would play them off to gain maximum leverage. And of course, that's just a non-starter now. So he's probably right to think that he needs to secure other allies to consolidate his rule. And this question, I guess it could be for either of you and without inviting wild speculation, what are the prospects of Belarus being drawn into the war directly? We've seen throughout the war that Ukraine has suggested that Belarus might be drawn in directly and might join the fight. That has never happened. And it seems quite unlikely, really. Lukashenko has shown himself very resistant to quite obvious Russian pressure to commit his troops to the war. The reasons for that are probably that if he were to commit his troops to the war, his own rule would be less secure because they're required to secure his own hold on power. And the war is probably very unpopular among the army. And there is no great desire to get involved in this war on the part of the army. And that might be close to a regime ending event, or at least how it seems to be seen by Lukashenko, who of course is essentially a client of Moscow and yet has not gone as far as to commit his troops to the war. And of course, if Belarus's troops were ever to be committed, it would most likely be as part of an offensive from the north. But we knew that an offensive from Belarus towards Kiev, so south, towards Ukraine. That was tried at the beginning of the war by Russia and obviously completely failed and Russia had to withdraw from the Kiev region. So it's it's not very likely that there is going to be a new assault from the north solely or with the participation of Belarusian troops. So in short, it doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to be very likely. I think the other thing just to add to Ido's excellent points there is the extent to which Belarus's own sovereignty has really been undermined in recent years. I think Ido is right to flag this positioning that Lukashenko has long tried to take of playing off Russia and the West. And really since 2020 and the crushing of of the rigged presidential elections, and we should probably add that as far as the EU is concerned, they don't recognize his claim to have won the presidency in that election. When he was forced to turn to Putin for support, then that really brought an end to his attempt to play one off against the other. And we've certainly seen talk of what I've seen some analysts describe as the soft annexation of Belarus since then. Russia and Belarus are nominally part of this union state, which was agreed, I think, in 1999. But Lukashenko had always been able to resist, stall, hold off talks on what actual further integration would mean. Since 2020, he looks to have been less able to do that. And you hear much more discussion now of Russia being able to push its designs over Belarus as well as its designs over Ukraine. And actually, just as Lukashenko was leaving for China, there were reports, which he denied, that the Kremlin had drawn up a plan to seize uh, full control of Belarus by 2030. So I think that has got to be a consideration from his side too, is how to retain some modicum of strategic independence and certainly pursuing relations with China is part of this in being able to hold on to a little bit of both his own dignity and his operating and his room for maneuver at a time when he is really very dependent on Vladimir Putin. We often talk of 
Russia's intention to subjugate Ukraine and so on. But Belarus is also a part of this idea of greater Russia. So you've got great Russia, which is Russia itself, and then Belarus and Ukraine as part of this kind of greater Russia idea. And of course, we've spoken about Russia trying to integrate Ukraine into its sphere of influence, but a part of the idea of greater Russia sort of union is also Belarus and uh, Katie's right to point out de facto that the Kremlin has pursued this kind of policy of essentially completely subjugating and undermining Belarusian sovereignty. As mentioned before, this is a story about Belarus and China's um, outreach to some of the West's not exactly favorite countries. We'll link a few things in the show notes below. But now we're going to turn to Russia proper where the defense ministry has this week accused Ukraine of launching a raft of attempted drone strikes targeting infrastructure deep inside Russia, including near Moscow. So this follows a fire at an oil depot on Russia's Black Sea coastline. Russian state media has also posted a photograph of what what it claims was a crash device by a gas facility outside the capital. And the device appears to resemble a Ukrainian-made UJ-22 attack drone. So there's a lot to unpack here. First of all, Katie, I'm going to go to you. What do you make of these attacks? And how likely is it that Russia is being honest about Ukraine being behind them? I forget who it was who had the quote about how do you tell when a politician is lying? They're moving their lips. I think that's a fair prism to bring to most statements that come out of the Kremlin these days. We should say there is no direct clear evidence that Ukraine is behind these attacks. If it is, you can see the military logic for doing this. Um, Attacks deep behind the Russian lines and in Russia itself force the Russian military to think about defending its own territory as much as offensive maneuvers against Ukraine. So you can see the military rationale if Ukraine is behind this. I think the political rationale is is substantially more dubious. I think you need to see this in the context of this is at a time when Ukraine now wants fighter jets from the West The concern here in the US about that has always been, what if these are used for attacks on Russia proper? What if that escalates the war? How do we know what Ukraine is going to use this for? So if Ukraine is staging drone attacks against Russia, that's only going to fuel the sort of counter argument here about being quite careful about the capabilities that the US and its partners give to Ukraine. Um, You could argue that would give a rationale for Russia to have staged these attacks itself to have strengthened that argument. So we are deep in the fog of this and it is not clear who is behind it. But if it is Ukraine, I think politically that could be problematic. It also does take you into more dubious territory in terms of international law, makes a distinction between military and civilian objectives. You can make an argument that some parts of civilian infrastructure, for instance, power plants that are being used by military infrastructure, you can make an argument that's a legitimate military object, but it's harder to do that in general. And that could also leave Ukraine open to accusations that it's stepping over the line. So look, I think it is important to wait for more information and to be very skeptical, as I said at the outset, about any claims that come from Russia at this point. But if this is an attempt 
by Ukraine to push behind the Russian lines. I think that's a that's something to watch very closely and to move very carefully on because that could certainly be quite counterproductive in terms of support over here. Yeah, it seems to me that if it was Ukraine, there are echoes of the assassination of Alexander Dugan's daughter, which you wrote about last year, Katie, which we can also link to in the notes. But And that was on Russian soil. And there has been quite a few reports and some of them, you know, it's quite a lot of reason to believe the veracity that, that Ukraine was potentially behind that. And there is the same kind of arguments then about Ukraine overstepping and it being a strategically quite dicey move. There's another element as well, less about Western support, but more about hardening Russian resolve if all of a sudden the fighting were to take place and move onto Russian soil, especially right outside Moscow, that that could really legitimize some of the Russian narratives. And Katie, you've made this point before, that Russia is fighting a defensive fight. It's not the one attacking. Yeah, I think that's a really important element to bring up here, that the framing of this war in Russia, falsely, is that this is a defensive war. If these attacks are carried out by Ukraine, then there's a potential that that strengthens what is currently a completely fictional narrative, that Russia is under attack and does help to generate popular support, because this is genuinely not a popular conflict inside Russia. People are not rallying enthusiastically around the flag. Overwhelmingly, opinion polls show that the the majority response is to try to turn the volume down on this war, to try to focus on your own life, pretend it's not happening. If there are attacks on Russian soil, that becomes harder to do and there's a risk that generates popular support. You're right that there is strong evidence, and certainly the US has said it believes that Ukraine was behind the attack on Daria Dugina. But Russia also does have substantial form for these what are called false flag attacks. There is still strong suspicion that Russia, or at least parts of the Russian intelligence services, were involved in these attacks on high-rise apartment blocks in Russia in 1999, which were used as the basis for the second war in Chechnya. So yeah, I guess it, we should just be aware that there have been instances in the past where Russia has been accused of carrying out attacks on its own territory to, to justify these actions, which I guess is a very long way of saying we just don't know at, the, at this stage what is behind it. But I think it's certainly a very troubling development in, the, in this conflict. Yeah, I agree with Katie. I think just one thing, like it's also important to maintain a sense of perspective, like Throughout this conflict, the overwhelming majority of fighting, dying and civilian deaths, uh, military deaths have taken place in Ukraine and not in Russia. These are a very small number of drone attacks, plausibly the fault of Ukraine. And there have been some attacks inside Russia proper, but these are nowhere near the number that obviously take place in in Ukraine on a daily basis. And so it's like we, we should not discuss this, but at the same time, it is probably important to maintain a sense of proportion and highlight that like... Ukraine is fighting overwhelmingly on its own territory and the number of attacks inside Russia proper, inside internationally recognized Russia, is very small compared to what's happening in Ukraine. If indeed they are actually taking place. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely something that is a moving story and evolving, so it's one we'll be watching. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both, from as little as one pound a week. 
That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Hi, I'm Anoush and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So now it's time to hear from you with a section that we like to call You Ask Us. A listener asks, what is Macron trying to achieve in Africa? So Ido, as our resident French expert, I'm going to go to you with this one. So Macron is visiting four countries in Africa this week. He's going to Gabon, Angola, Congo, and the Democratic Republic of Congo in what's his 18th trip to Africa since he took office in 2017. And he's got a he's got a set of aims. I think a lot of the kind of purpose of this trip seems to be military because Macron's going to Africa at a time when French influence is really changing in the continent. There are debates as to whether France should close the military bases that it still has in in some countries on the continent, most ex-colonies. And also there was the operation in Mali, which which was a kind of anti-jihadist operation, which was wound down last year after the country's government asked French troops to leave. And France is fighting to to maintain some influence in the continent because lots of basically ex-colonies are instead of France increasingly turning to Russia and China. So for example, Mali's military government has turned to 
Russia's Wagner Group to ostensibly maintain its security instead of France. And Wagner also has an extensive presence in, for example, the Central African Republic, another former colony. And of course, France has a has a really very intertwined continuing relationship with many of its former colonies in Africa, much more intertwined than other ex-colonial powers. So, for example, the France CFA, so the two currencies, which are the which are the currencies of fourteen countries in Africa, are still pegged to the euro, and the reserves for those currencies are held in France. It's a level of influence that it just isn't matched by any other former colonial power, and clearly there, there's a growing level of resentment about that in in Africa about issues like this, the military aspect, the continuing influence that France has over many of its former colonies, which is a relationship that's been termed France-Afrique, disparagingly. And I've been looking into this for a piece on another promise that Macron has made to restore art that was taken from Africa, looted, and in some cases looted from sub-Saharan Africa during the colonial period. And it's quite astonishing. An estimated 90 to 95% of arts produced in sub-Saharan Africa is outside of Africa at the moment. There are hundreds of thousands of pieces in European museums. Actually, the largest number apparently is in Belgium, but there are tens of thousands of pieces in the UK, Netherlands, France. The level of it is quite astonishing. And unsurprisingly, young people in Africa are not very happy with this. And so Macron um, has announced that he wants a law on restoring African artwork to African countries. Obviously, a lot of the kind of states that exist now were not around at the time that the art was looted. So it's not exactly restoring it to the countries that it was stolen to, but the regions at least. And clearly one of the objectives of this trip is to try and form a more sustainable partnership of equals rather than the almost neo-colonial relationship that France has had with its ex-colonies for a very long time since they became independent. Do you see public support in France shifting on this? Is this part of what Macron is doing? That is, is there a sort of greater public awareness of how like wholly unacceptable this is and the need to take some steps to try to tackle it? So I think it depends on the issue. So actually, for example, on art, there's been quite a lot of pushback against plans to restore artworks to African countries. And this is on the basis of kind of the supposed universality of art. Art belongs to humanity. And if it's exhibited in Paris, it's being exhibited to humanity and not to the French people, which is obviously an argument that has a lot of resonance in France, because France is a country that's very attached to this idea of universality. But I think the kind of extensive influence that France has in Africa is not really very well understood. I think many French people would be shocked if you told them that 14 African countries have a currency where half of the reserves are held in France. But at the same time, there hasn't really been a kind of concerted effort to address this influence. That was a great question. So thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. And a reminder that you can send in your question at newstatesman.com slash us or by tweeting us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday when I'll be speaking to the scholar and author Andrew Small about how China lost Europe. If you're a regular World Review listener and you haven't already subscribed, please do. Please also rate us five stars and leave us a great review. It really does help. Our producer has been May Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time. Hey. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 